I am Oliver Turner, the Executive Vice President of Corporate Development for Corora Resources. Corora Resources is a Western Australian uh, growing gold producer. We have three assets in Western Australia in the Kalgoorlie region, the Beta Hunt Mine, the Higginsville Mines, and the Spargos Gold Mine. We also have two mills, and we're currently expanding production from about 100,000 ounces a couple of years ago, all the way up to close to 200,000 ounces uh, by the end of 2024. Oliver, good to see you again, uh, and you're in Perth. Yes, I am. Yes, down there, seeing the seeing the team. How's it going down there? Uh, really good. Yeah, no, it's good to be uh, back in the you know the operational office and and the day to day stuff that people are working on right here. We just reported our results uh, last night, Perth time. Obviously, uh, at, you know, in the morning in Toronto, uh, Eastern Standard Time. A lot of work went into that with our board meetings and a lot of operational updates. So it's great to be here in the thick of things. We're also going to be hosting uh, an analyst tour. Uh, for a research coverage analyst uh, next week, which we're super excited about. Get to show them the assets, take them around and show them all the cool things we're working on. Cool. Okay. Well, look, um, I, I quite like talking to producers because um, you can produce. You're producing gold. I don't, we don't need to have a conversation about can you produce gold. You're doing it. What, what, I, what I can do is look at some of the numbers. Okay. So obviously you, you're going to sort of throw out some of the big numbers in terms of you know, record revenue, just you know, sub 100 million bucks. And, uh, and, and actually you're reporting a net earnings figure um as, as well so obviously things are going well on the ground operationally in terms of the, the the gold uh production and gold sales um but you've got so many moving parts to this thing sometimes it can be hard for people to kind of follow what's going on so why don't you give us the kind of the big headline numbers and then i want to talk to you about growth plans because that's i think that's the bit that excited excites investors yeah absolutely so uh, obviously just reported fourth quarter and 2022 numbers uh last night as i mentioned 2022 was a record year for Cora. Um, we're you know we're growing year after year after year, both when it comes to uh, ounces that we're producing, as well as you know cash flow from operations, which is ultimately what matters in the end, and that going straight to the bottom line, all while growing and reinvesting into the business. So last year, our guided range was 120 to 135,000 ounces. We produced just under 135,000 ounces, right at the top end of that range. And for those of your investors who've been following the story for a while now, you know, we had a challenging start to the year last year, not of our own doing, but of course, then in the first quarter, second quarter, early last year, here in Western Australia, it opened up for the first time in 600 plus days, uh, which of course brought COVID-19 through, which impacted operations. So it was a challenging first half of the year. We still delivered on our ounces, but there's those cost impacts second half of the year was phenomenal. And that brought us right back into those guided ranges. So as I said, just under 135,000 ounces. And then on the cost front, we reported all in sustaining costs of 1171 or $1,171 per ounce, again, within our guided range of 1100 to $1,200 an ounce. So a really strong performance in the second half of the year is what reigned in the impact of that, you know, that COVID-19 reopening early on in the year. That went right through to the bottom line. We reported really strong adjusted earnings and EBITDA numbers, uh, which you know obviously allowed us to continue to grow. In the end, what matters most is cash, right? We exited 2021 with $90 million in cash, and we exited 2022 with just under $70 million in cash whilst continuing to de- develop uh, the underground decline at Beta Hunt, whilst you know purchasing the Lakewood Mill, while reinvesting into our properties. So you know what we said a couple of years ago is still ringing true here. This has been a self-funded growth plan uh, the whole way while we generate cash and continue to expand the operations. It, it, it is, but all businesses need to make money, right? So um, we, we need some idea from you as to, you know, where the money is going, to, when it's going to come and what it was going to be used for and, you know, and how do we benefit, right? So yep. at the moment, it's it 
you know, there's, there's obviously no dividends being paid out now. You're plowing the money back on the ground. And therein lies the danger with, you know, producers. They're, they're, they're making money, they're making revenue, and they're putting it straight back in the, in the ground. So come back to my question around growth plan. Are you setting yourself up for success in the future, or are we going to see more of the same behavior where you're buying mills and you're spending money as quickly as you're making it? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we've obviously laid out the three-year plan, which we originally put out in, in 2021. Uh, you know, we, we ended up solving one of our, our biggest risk factors uh, with the purchase of the Lakewood Mill versus expanding the Higginsville Mill uh, la- last year, which has, you know, tremendous success and has actually helped us to improve our production even faster than we had originally planned, which is great. Um, but when it comes to the, the growth plan, so, you know, the, the key factors, obviously, now that we've got that Lakewood Mill in place, are that it is basically all focused around beta hunt. So it's the addition of the second decline of beta hunt is is of critical importance. We were really happy to report about four weeks ago uh, that we actually completed that second decline ahead of schedule. And that's because we started it from two directions. We actually started from underground and from surface at the same time, and they met in the middle. We uh, finished it ahead of schedule and on budget, which of course in this cost environment is a great place to be. So that second decline, the access was completed. We're in the process of adding in ventilation. So that's added in over the course of this year. And then the capital injection into the decline is finished. What comes next? So currently, we produce you know around about uh, about a hundred thousand ounces out of beta iron. So a little bit more than that this year, actually. Um, how do we get there? We mine three to four stopes a quarter. I'm not going to dive too much into the technical details here, but those are massive stopes. This is a very large earth moving operation. We are averaging over 110,000 tons a month out of that ramp, which is just huge. And whenever you visit the site, you see the size of these 60 ton trucks underground. It's just an incredible operation to witness. So we're doing about 100,000 ounces or just over that um, from that single decline right now. The second decline will add additional capacity, brings uh, total mining capacity from 1 million tons per annum up to 2 million tons per annum. But to get there, you also need more stopes. So over the course of 2024, we'll be developing those additional stopes and we'll exit 2024 at that run rate of 2 million tons per annum. So come 2025, your capital deployment into beta hunt is complete from a growth perspective and you're generating incredible amounts of free cash flow from the you know, 160 to 170,000 ounces that you'd be mining out of beta hunt alone. Obviously, there's still Higginsville and just under that 200,000 ounce a year mark from, from the corporate perspective. Right. But they, okay. So beta hunt looks like it's you're setting it up for success, but the, the money that's going to come from that, is that going to be plowed back into Higginsville, Spargos? You've also got the, this nickel play, which I want to talk about it in, in, in yep, a second. Sure. Do you know what I mean? It's, it just feels like you're, you're creating money to plow back in the ground. So again, if you can give me some sort of inspiration as to you know what what's the, what's there to look forward to yeah 100 i mean you, obviously we work in a finite resource business right so number one you have to find more of that resource you have to find more ounces in order to do that you have to put money to exploration here's a pretty incredible uh number for for your audience so uh, since 2019 we've grown our resource at beta hunt from about 400,000 ounces all the way up to 2.4 million ounces we've done that via the drill bit from existing underground development our discovery cost is about 15 bucks an ounce. The conversion cost is about 20 bucks an ounce. For $35 an ounce, you're finding and bringing an ounce into resource that you can then mine. That is extremely efficient use of capital. The ROI on those dollars spent is, is absolutely phenomenal. Not only do you turn that into cash in the near term, but of course you get a valuation multiple based on the life of mine that you extend by adding more ounces. So 
you got to grow the operation. You have to find more gold uh, to mine. In order for us to generate more cash flow and more free cash flow, you have to invest in that expansion. Once we're at that run rate at a beta hunt, the 2 million tons per annum run rate, we might even be a little bit higher than that, but let us get to 2 million tons per annum first. Once we're at that run rate, it's about harvesting cash. It's about continuing to, to grow that resource and continue to add ounces, but harvesting that free cash flow. And then as a business, of course, you know, you mentioned it earlier, there's things like dividends that we can talk about. There's uh, things like share buybacks, you know, it, it, when it comes to, uh, you know, dips in the whole sector that affect everybody that we can look at and other ways of returning cash to shareholders. But as a gold mining business, as a mining business in general, you always need to be investing in your future because if you don't, that future comes up on you very, very quickly. And we're seeing in the sector, you know, across with a lot of other names that are running right through their reserves and resources. Without that reinvestment, you'll never have it. But we will always, always, always focus on strong cash flow generation and and eventually, of course, return of that capital of shareholders. Okay, right. So um, reserves, resources, increasing, good news. So let's look at some of the deployments, some of the other capital. Uh, Let's start with um, exploration first, and we'll get on to nickel. So, what, what are you, what are you, what are you doing at the moment? Yeah. So uh, last year, obviously, we just announced uh, again about a month ago now. I think it's February thirteenth. Uh, we announced uh, increased resources and reserves. We had a tremendous amount of growth in our in our resource base, over five hundred thousand ounces, and that's in just eight months since the prior update. I mean, it just Beta Hunt is the mine that keeps on giving when it comes to to adding gold ounces. It's a phenomenal place to be. Our focus this year is going to be on two things. We'll always continue to expand our resources. So our goal every year is we mine ounces and then we add obviously our depletion back plus some. If you look at the last four years of Beta Hunt, we've actually, as I said, turned from gone from 400,000 ounces to 2.4, but we've mined 400,000 ounces over that period. So we've actually found 2.8, which is pretty cool. So we'll continue to add resources. We're also gonna convert those resources into reserves. That requires, obviously, uh, inferred resources into M&I resources, which then turns into reserves. That's very important. With respect to targets, where are we focusing? So everybody remembers Larkin. We talked about that for, for about two years now. You know, From initial discovery through to, to resource was 18 months. Yep, that's pretty pretty good time frame, and we're already generating cash flow out of that region, which is pretty cool. Um, when it comes to new targets, Mason. Mason is very, very exciting. It's parallel to the Larkin. It's starting to look like a Larkin lookalike. Um, it is something that we're going to focus on this year, uh, and we're going to focus on bringing into resource in our next resource update, which comes out at the end of this year. So the Mason's fantastic. We've also got Cowsill, Fletcher, Sorensen, all of these shear zones at Beta Hunt that we keep uncovering. Uh, we're going to focus on those over the course of this year. So you'll get some more drilling results, you know, probably here in the next month or so as we batch these things up and release them. But Mason is looking very, very interesting. So why, given that, why have you refreshed the 2023 and 2024 production guidance? Yeah, for sure. So it's, it's a good point. So let's take a step back here and, and, you know, we won't reminisce too much. But that first, that guidance has only basically been put out once before. It was put out on June 28th of 2021. If we all think back to the world that we lived in in 2021, Zero cost money was basically flowing around. The world was a wonderful place. Tech companies were trading at 35 times forward revenue multiples. You know, it was a wonderful world that we lived in, right? Um, and seemingly there's no end to this money and the cost environment is very, very good. Fast forward two years to the environment that we've all been through over the last period of time. Everybody, you know, the concept of inflation is not going to be any stranger to any of your investors. We've seen that when it comes to almost every input cost that a money company or any company can have when it comes to consumables. So we talk about reagents, we're talking about in input things like diesel. Uh, when it comes to labor, uh, all of these things have seen upward price pressures. So what we did was we basically updated it 
to the current cost environment that we currently exist in today, our previous forecast. And we've done a couple of things with it. So when I, let's start with uh, the gold ounces, and then I'm going to step down to some of the costs and give you a few more details there. When it comes to the gold ounces, we've tightened up those ranges. But the one that's probably the most important is 2024. You know, that's the furthest out one that we have right now. We took about 5% off the top end of gold guidance. I mean, 5% is not that not that big of a deal. We went from 205,000 ounces at the top end to 195,000 ounces at the top end. Why did that happen? Well, it happened for a very good business reason. So originally, we had planned to start up the Spargos underground mine. We finished the open pit mine in mid-2023. It's going to be a good mine. It's going to continue to generate revenue. You know, a little plug here. We acquired Spargos for $4.5 million. We've mined over 40,000 ounces out of it. It's been a really, really good piece of business for core shareholders. We're going to be going underground there as well. There's some phenomenal grades there. However, late last year, as we started to crystallize some of those economics around the nickel opportunity, here's another number for you. I know we're going to talk about nickel in a second here. We'll get to some more details, but there's over a billion dollars worth of nickel sitting there in Beta Hunt in resource, ready to be mined. When we started to run the numbers on those, we realized that in terms of ROI on our capital deployment, look, we are a growing gold company. We're a junior that's growing into probably a small sort of mid-tier, let's call it an intermediate. Um, we have limited capital that's available to us in terms of cash flow from operations without going out and raises more money. So if we spend a dollar here, sometimes we can't spend a dollar here. What we did was we took a dollar away from that early startup Spargos Underground and we're putting it into accelerating that nickel. We realized that the ROI of those dollars is much, much higher. So we decided we'd expand the nickel a little bit faster, push Spargos back by one year. It will start at the midpoint of 2024. And on gold ounces, the impact was a little bit of a trim in 2024 on the top end, about 10,000 ounces. We'll get those ounces in 2025. They're still coming. They're not going anywhere. They're still on the ground. So that was the decision on the gold ounces. Coming down to all-in sustaining costs, you've obviously seen a bump up in all-in sustaining costs. That is obviously a reflection of the reality of a current cost environment that every single mining company in the world is experiencing right now. It's not just Western Australia. It's not just gold mining companies. It's certainly not just Corora. It is every mining company on earth. I am not going to name any kind of names, but we're seeing average AISCs across a lot of the sector in our weight class that are well north of $1,500 US per ounce. So margins have certainly been shrinking with these cost pressures. So we updated there, but we have one ace up our sleeve. And I keep talking about what we're going to talk about because I'm really excited about it. And that is the nickel. And that is our decision. That is our, ins you know, it's our insurance uh, uh, policy or our way to insulate ourselves from any further cost increases is bringing that nickel on as fast as we can because the byproduct uh, potential there tremendous. Okay, so explain explain how that works because you you made a decision in the, in the backdrop of a rising gold price. Okay, it's been a you know good, good few weeks, but it has only been a few weeks. Um, but there has been this massive disconnect between gold equities and and co the commodity price of of gold. Um, do you see that changing? Um, and if you do, do you not see that changing better than say perhaps the the nickel price? Because again, nickel prices. Had a good run at the at, at the beginning of last year and sort of come off um, a, a little bit. So wh wh why are you doing that arbitrage between we'll go for the nickel now rather than focus on the gold? Yeah, so you know a couple of good points there for sure. So we've obviously seen gold prices come up for sure. When you look at the reality of input cost pressures across the sector, input cost pressures have increased at a faster clip than gold prices increase. So when you actually look at your margins versus two years ago on gold ounces, 
for every company in the sector, for the most part, margins have actually shrunk. Now, what we're starting to see, which is great and good news, early days yet, hopefully these signals are right, is we're starting to see a plateau in those input cost pressures. And in some cases, not labor, but in some cases, you're actually starting to see them come down a little bit. If gold price takes that next level up, and leg up, and, you know, we can talk about that in a few minutes if you like, and, and sort of thesis on, on where gold could go, that's pure margin expansion. That's fantastic. Nickel, on the other hand, at beta hunt, and this isn't a gold versus nickel decision. This is a gold versus a nickel decision in beta hunt. We can access nickel by turning left instead of right. The upfront capital cost to bring on that nickel PA that we talked about last, last year was under $10 million. The IRRs that drove, or the internal rate of return that that drove, were well north of 230%. It is an unbelievably high return project. Our margins on the nickel are about $15,000 a ton. It is a very, very profitable, profitable business for us on a per ton basis. We are a gold company. We will always be a gold company. We're going to focus on gold. If we left that nickel uh, and pushed it back by a couple of years, the amount of cash that could generate for our shareholders, uh, you know, leaving that behind wouldn't make much sense whatsoever. You will see the benefit of that start to flow through to the byproduct credit line, which will lower your all of sustaining costs. As we ramp up that nickel, it is absolutely tremendous what we can do with that. So it's a very high return project within our existing mine that we can access very, very easily. That's the difference. If we had another nickel project, for example, that was outside of beta huds, we would not be making the same decision. There are no big ramp up costs for this. This isn't a decision on a metal. This is a decision on how do we make the most money the fastest today. Okay. Well, music to shareholders' ears, I'm sure, if, if, if you deliver on that. So um, just, just sticking with that. Uh, just, before you, just before you say that, I mean, we do have a track record of delivery quarter after quarter after quarter. You so do. Your shareholders you do. should probably believe that we're going to deliver on this. You <laughs> do. Um, good point. Well made. <laughs> But I use it. That's that's my line. I usually say that about you. Um, okay, so <laughs> no, no, absolutely, absolutely. But with, with the with the guys to the nickel and and how much you're allocating, so remind me how much you're spending. You've chosen to spend on the nickel component, and why that number versus something fifty percent higher, fifty percent lower? Yeah. So I mean, let, let's sort of bring it back to the one uh, re limiting step or bottleneck that that exists in the whole operation. Let's let's talk about that. It's ventilation, right? We've put that additional de decline in. Done. Great. Fantastic. You cannot bring more equipment or more people underground until you have more air, right? We've got a fully running operation right now doing just over a million tons per annum. We did 1.1 million tons per annum last year, uh, which is fantastic. We need more ventilation. So one of three vent raises, done. Second one, underway. Third one comes later this year. Once that ventilation is into the mine, we can bring in more equipment, which is both trucks for the gold, drills to drill off everywhere, and personnel. Once that's in we can then fully execute on those capital deployments. So we can't just decide to spend more money today and bring it, you know, bring it forward really, really fast. We are limited by that ventilation. That's why you've seen the 2024 number go up slightly because we want to accelerate that as much as we possibly can in two different ways. We're going to be obviously working on developing those nickel faces to bring on the nickel, nickel operation. We're also going to be drilling like a bat out of hell on that nickel side of things. I mentioned it earlier, but I think it's worth reiterating. Our current resource, the updated one that we just put out a few weeks ago, is 34,500 nickel tons at beta hunt. Okay, so that's that's contained metal, contained metal in, in the rock. In 35 years of nickel mining at beta hunt, all your viewers, I think, know by this point that it used, historically was a nickel operation for 35 years before it became a gold mine. 
in 35 years, 66,000 nickel tons were mined. We have just over half of what was historically mined in 35 years in resource drilled out today. Pick your nickel price. Conservatively, that's worth over a billion dollars. Our market cap is $800 million right now. It's worth over a billion dollars of nickel there today. Every bit of extension that we do that to that nickel resource adds, it, adds an incredible amount of value in situ. And what we want to do is we want to accelerate as many faces to ramp up nickel as fast as we can. We put a PAA on what we think we could do initially, and I'm not giving any kind of new guidance here, but I'm saying I think that we might be able to beat that once we get there. Um, we're going to be doing about 2,000 nickel tons per year. Those are some pretty serious numbers when it comes to byproduct credit. So we will be expanding more. That's why 2024, you saw that growth capital number creep up a little bit, more of that going into nickel. That's why you've seen a little bit of shift in ounces versus uh, you know, versus um, uh, nickel tons. We're putting more of a focus on the nickel tons in that, in that interim period. Why? Simply put, you generate more cash. That's what everybody cares about. Right. Okay. And with regards to what, again, so what, what generally happens in markets like this is producers go off and buy other producers and spend a vast sum of money doing so at, at, at the height of the market. The markets are a little bit wonky at the moment. Uh, gold price is high. Do you expect to see a bit more consolidation in the market? And uh, are you going to be part of that? Yeah. I mean, you definitely you just, just take a look at the side, see some of the deals that were happening, right? Um, we're in a really unique period right now. Um, where valuations have come back to that very much back to earth. Um, the gold equities, you know, there's a huge decoupling from gold bullion prices versus the, you know, the valuations that gold equities trade at. And what we've seen is a lot of producers, obviously, a very large reserve table that they need to replenish. In the last couple of years, it's been a producer for producer purchase. Everybody's been focused on immediate cash flow generation. And as we all know, there's only so many of them out in the world there uh, that you'd actually want to acquire that are, that are decent where you have real synergies. We're starting to see a little bit of a move, uh, B2 Gold Sabina deal, for example, from the producer space down into the large developer space because they need to replenish you know, their future production profile as well. Um, but it's, it's definitely uh, been a bit of a shift. On the same time, and this isn't the case, it was a reminder, I spent seven years talking to institutional investors as a research analyst before this on a daily basis. At the same time, you have institutional support for M&A. That's not always there. So we're in a deal on environment right now for the right deals. Now let's talk about what matters to the largest investors on earth. Okay. We'll take a little bit of a step back here and then we'll come back to the MA point because it's very, very relevant. Generalist investors who manage most of the world's active money, much, much larger. And this is an, an, not an insult to the gold space or gold investors. You know, I'm one of them. The gold sector is a tiny, tiny, tiny little sector compared to other sectors. Now therein lies the opportunity. When the generalists want to get into the sector, there's only so many homes they can find. And you want to be one of those top homes on their list. How do you become more relevant to generalist investors? You get bigger. You get bigger in terms of production profile, but most importantly, in terms of market cap. They don't want to go all the way down the list. They want to pick the top five names in a weight class. So from an M&A perspective, there's a real narrative here that doing the right deal at the right valuation, where one plus one does equal three, to get bigger and generate more cash puts you further up on the radar screen of these generalist investors that we all always want to attract. And all you need is a very small allocation of their portfolio. We're talking single basis points of their portfolio. If that flows into this sector, um, you know we're off to the races in terms of equity return. I've got a, I've got a great. Um line here on that just helps people kind of picture it in their head if you if you took 
all of the mining companies from BHP, Rio, down to the smallest explorer prospector, bundled them into one company, it would be 50% of the size of Apple. Yep. One technology company. So when you were talking about the deployment of capital for some of these big funds, we really are a minuscule sector and just a very small portion of what they could deploy into this space would make a dramatic, dramatic change. So I, I hear what you're saying. Um, Absolutely. For, for sure. Um, can, can we just can we just talk about um, a little bit more about um, gold and what happens next for gold? Because um, we're you know our thesis in the background is I think that producers are really really important because I think it's suffered perhaps in the past of being something that people would look at and go, well they're they're you know they're fully formed now. There there's no leverage. There's no real upside to these things. And you know when people are talking down in the exploration space about. 10 baggers and 20 baggers it's it's it doesn't have you know this the producers don't have the same sex and sizzle there but coming back to my theme for this thing which is growth story what's happening next for gold what's happening next for gold producers yeah no so it's a great point right and and if you're trying to attract um the, those larger investors um and even for people that are you know gold sector specialists where do they want to put their money right there's two types of two major types of investors you got value investing you've got growth investing now, I would argue that the majority of the gold sector right now is already a value play, just just where you know equities are basically sitting. Now, on the growth side of the things, uh, the equation, if you want cash flow growth, self funded growth, you know, money generating growth, then you basically want to look at stories that are expanding at the same time as obviously they're the trading at attractive valuations. A lot of the producers right now are sitting in that snack bracket, and Core is certainly one of them. Look, we are. 18 months away, less than 18 months away from basically hitting that peak rate. We're expanding right now, but at the same time we're doing it, we're generating cash. At the same time we're doing it, we're expanding gold resources. We're you know, putting a lot of money into exploration, which is benefiting all of our shareholders from an NAV perspective. So that's something that's really, really interesting. And I think it also helps to de-risk your investment on the downside, right? If you have an expanding cash generating gold producer, you don't have an entity that's potentially running out of cash, or you don't have an entity that lives and dies on the drill bit. So it's kind of the sweet spot right now for, for gold investing is those cash flow positive growing gold producers that are funding their expansion from basically cash from operations. That's where you want to be. Layer on another consideration, and you know, this is a core factor, not for everyone. We're in probably what I would consider the best mining jurisdiction in the world when it comes to permitting new operations. When it comes to, you don't need to deal with any political instability. You don't need to deal with regime changes. So by buying a stock like Corora, parking it, looking at it 12 months later, and I would encourage everyone to do that with any gold investment because we live in a volatile sector. Things can go up and down very quickly in a day. By doing that, you're buying a limited downside story with incredible upside and torque to a potential gold rising, I mean, rising price environment. Uh, which I think is the best place to be in the sector. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I'm so intrigued by the, the timing around that talk, you know, that spring coil, uh, as it were, that, um, that gold feels like again. Um, and, you know, what that's going to do for, for producers, then I think, you know, eventually some of the better, more advanced um, uh, development, development companies, uh, you know. Uh, so interesting, interesting times indeed. Um, with a few other things I just want to just very quickly because people kind of forget about all the kind of the, the the hard work stuff in the background around things like you know the ESG report you put out the the carbon neutrality hitting that again 
Um, and as you know, and then also you continuing to just you know tinker with the the, the balance sheet in terms of credit agreements and um, so on. So you this kind of operational focus is great because it's building the potential scale for this thing, which is I think we are in violent agreement with that is so important going forward, but also sort of building the company up the right way so that these institutions do rank you for um, the right things. Um, you spend a lot of, you're spending a lot of time on that one, building it, building um, nice teams up there. Yeah. Look, it's to, to, use a bit of a phrase as a Canadian, you talk about skating to where the puck is going, not where it is right now, right? So that's something we decided to do a couple of years ago when it came to what are the biggest limitations, uh, whether they agree with it or not, on large fund managers in, in this day and age, right? We're seeing more and more mandates coming down from from their LPs and their investors that have requirements that are ESG linked or you know carbon linked. So we decided to get ahead of that. And to be honest, and you know, I've said this on your, on your platform several times before, it's led to several very large institutions, uh, which have built very large positions in the stock and allowed existing institutions to increase the size of their positions. So that's been very, very successful for us. And you know, on the ESG report side of things, actually, um, we've been nominated forward for that inaugural report, which is actually pretty cool and, and not bad for our first one ever. So that's been really, really important. Um, on the, the debt side of things, um, we made the decision to replace our previous debt facility, which carried a 10% coupon rate on it at just the right time. Now, you know, the strategy was right. Timing is fortuitous, but we'll take fortuitous timing at any point in time for sure. Uh, we locked in a much lower uh, cost of capital on that Macquarie facility than we previously had. So what does that result in? Less interest payments going out on an annual basis, which is ultimately what it casts. Less, less of a drain on our cash balance. We also got the validation of a you know the largest Australian investment bank and uh, you know a, a global player doing you know very very strict due diligence on our process and validating that for us. Now, why does that matter? It matters from all sorts of reasons when it comes to raising you know additional credit or uh, any kind of M and A that you want to do. It's a huge validation. There's a lot of investors too that realize that debt service providers do a level of due diligence uh, that's far greater than most others. So that was a good stamp of approval for us. We're extremely happy to do that. When it comes to uh, moving forward, like what's next? What are these other sort of side projects that we're working on? Something I kind of want to draw attention to, and it will continue to make more sense as we get through over time. We are a nickel supplier to Nickel West. So Nickel West is BHP's concentrator. So whopping four kilometers away. So we'll never have to build a nickel concentrator. We haven't had to do it before, but previously we were trucking about 400 kilometers north of Beta Hunt for a nickel. Now we're doing four kilometers. They restarted it. BHP has an agreement with Tesla. Tesla builds batteries. Tesla does life cycle assessments on the batteries. They want to build green batteries. In order to build green batteries, you need green nickel. In order to have green nickel, you got to be able to supply green nickel. What does Coror produce? Green nickel. So that's part of our strategy as well, is thinking ahead to what is what are the suppliers and purchasers of nickel going to want? And that's why we've moved ahead there. There's several other projects, and I can't talk about them yet on your platform. I'm hoping I will be able to in the next couple months here that we're working on that tackle two things. Both, at both absolute cost reductions, but also emissions reductions. And remember, there's always a cost in carbon uh, that'll help you know basically improve our bottom line as well. So a lot of these things go hand in hand. A lot of investors view these as mutually exclusive. It's absolutely not the right way to approach it. There's a lot of things that can benefit cost lines at the same time as some addressing some of these other issues that attract additional investment. And it's been good for us so far. We've got a great shareholder roster because of it. And we've been uh, recognized across the industry for being leaders in the space. And that's what we like to be leaders. 